with our soul. Because you are the God of all gods. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And you have redeemed us by the blood of your Son. We stand here today to say no matter what has happened and is happening in our world, regardless of the chaos and regardless of the trials that we face, it is well with our soul. Thank you for that assurance. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. I would like to read for us verses 3 to 14. This has been the subject of our uh, sermons the last couple weeks, and this will be the third and final one through this particular set of verses. And then next week, Lord willing, we'll jump into verse 15 and following. But I would like to read verses 3 to 14. You can follow along in the Bible you have with you, or if you want to watch on the screen, you can follow along there as well. Paul here writing to the church, the saints who are in Ephesus, the faithful ones in Christ Jesus. And he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice the capital B there, beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In this verse 13, this is where we'll spend our time today, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Over and over and over again, Paul comes back to this conclusion. To the praise of his glory. It's all about his glory. I'm going to rattle off a, a list of names, individuals, and I want you to think in your mind, what do these particular uh, people have in common? Okay? David Brainerd, George Whitfield, William Carey, David Livingstone, Peter Parker, and no, that's not Spider-Man, all right? John Stott, D. James Kennedy. Have you ever heard, have you heard any of those names? How many of you have ever heard any of, any of those names? Okay, what do those names have in common? What's the common thread that runs through each one of them? Well, if you are a student of history, you know that each one of them is a famous evangelist or a famous missionary. Each one of them was a giant in the spread of the gospel 
throughout the world. Some of them were missionaries in places like Africa, places like India, even in America, uh, places in China. A couple of them created evangelism covenants and evangelism training curriculums that are still used today and are used globally uh, yeah, around the world. They're massive in their influence uh, used by God to spread the good news of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And each one of those individuals with varied words and, and varied styles communicated the exact same message. The message was this. You were created in the image of God to bring him glory and to love him forever. You were designed to worship God and God alone. But your ancestors, your forefathers, Adam and Eve, sinned. And they plunged the entire human race into a sinful rebellion against a creator God. And now each and every person who has been born after them has been born into the world with a sinful nature. And then on top of that, we have each contributed to this rebellion by committing our own personal sin against God. So each one of us rightly stand under the condemnation and judgment of God for our sin. And the wages of sin is death, right? We all deserve spiritual death, physical death, forever, for the ways that we have spurned God's commands. But God, that's what I love about Ephesians chapter 2, but God, in his great mercy and love toward us, provided a substitute to take our place. He sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to live out the character of God, the commands of God with perfect obedience. And while we deserve to die, Jesus went to a cross and in our place, he died for our sin. And all of God's anger was exhausted upon the back of Jesus. And Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose again and he provided now the the or he demonstrated really that he had the power over sin and death and Satan. And Jesus ascended back to the Father where today he resides at the right hand of the Father having completed the mission for which the Father sent him. That is the message that has been preached for 2,000 years. It started its spread by foot uh, in, the, in the early days in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. And that message has continued to be heralded for 2,000 years in different ways, by different means, but the same message over and over again. Jesus died for sinners. That is the means that God has chosen to evangelize lost people. That message of the gospel. Did you ever wonder why God doesn't just zap people and, and make them be saved just kind of it'd be a lot easier if God was just sort of strike everybody with lightning and kind of make them do what he wants them to do but that's not how he chose to do it God chose to save lost people by the proclamation of the gospel and so it's the proclamation of God's word the good news of Jesus Christ that the Holy Spirit takes and effectually works faith into the hearts of men and women. And when, when 
men and women hear the gospel and ask, what must I do to be saved? Acts chapter 16 says this, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. So we proclaim that message indiscriminately. We, we preach the good news of gospel to men and women, boys and girls, and we know that if and when one of those individuals believes, something miraculous happens. Something miraculous, and that's what I want us to look at today, what that miraculous thing is. So we've been saying over the last few weeks that this passage, this opening doxology of Paul to the Ephesians in verses 3 to 14, demonstrates and, and describes to us the ways that the Godhead is involved in our salvation. That passage, one long sentence in the original Greek, is really broken down into three sections. And as Paul reflects on each person of the Trinity's role in our salvation, he concludes that little mini-section with the words, to the praise of his glorious grace, or to the praise of his glory. Paul just cannot get over the magnitude of what's taken place as he thinks about his own salvation, and he keeps really coming back to this thought of, this is all about God. This whole act of salvation brings glory to God. So he starts off in verse 3 by considering how God the Father plays a role in saving sinful people. He says, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, God uh, put forth this plan in, in which he would set his love and affection in, on people and he would predetermine, it says that he would predestine them to adoption in his family. Look at verse 5. It says, God, the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. That's the plan. I'm going to adopt a people into my family. Now, now watch. God the Son then, Jesus Christ, willingly carries out that plan from the Father. Look at these verses from Galatians chapter 4. Watch this. It says this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, this Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, watch this, so that we might receive adoption as sons. So watch the progression there, okay? God the Father, in Ephesians 1 verse 5, it says that he predestined us for adoption as sons. He, he made this plan to adopt us into his family. God the Son redeems us, according to that Galatians 4 passage, so that that adoption can happen. So where does the Spirit come in? Is the Spirit ever tied to our adoption? He is. This is amazing. Watch this. In, in Romans chapter 8, it says, For all who were led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of what? Adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
And if you sit back and you watch that, you just kind of go, wow, that, that imagery of adoption flows through that entire story. So, so catch this again. This, this is vitally important. God the Father puts forth the plan for adoption. God the Son carries out the means for adoption. And then God the Spirit gives of himself to believers to transact the adoption. We have received the spirit of, of adoption. So the entire trinity is involved in the believer's salvation. If you are sitting here today and you are a Christian, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have cooperated to work together to bring about your salvation. That's pretty amazing to think about. So it, it, it begs this question that we want to answer today. How is that adoption transacted by the Spirit? And, and when it happens, what does it mean for the believer? What does it mean that the Spirit has been given to me so that I'm adopted as a son? Uh, that's what we want to look at this morning. That's what we want to deal with. So go back to Ephesians 1, if you still have your Bible, and let's work through this together. Look again at verse 13. It says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel message, by its very definition, is a message that must be proclaimed. It's something that must be told. It's something that's revealed to us by the Father, but it's something that's spoken, all right? When you heard the gospel of your salvation. Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 20, 21, somewhere right in there. Romans chapter 1 is a whistleblower uh, that lets us in on a little secret. Romans 1 tells us that everyone knows that there is a God. Every single human being knows there is a God. Here's what it says, Romans 1 verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. No matter what anyone tells you, even if they are an avowed atheist, deep down in their heart, Romans 1 tells us they know that there is a God. They know there's a God. Now, they've chosen to suppress that truth, Romans 1 goes on to say. They've chosen to reject that. But in their heart of hearts, they know there is a God. Why? Because they can see his creation, and they know there is something more than just random things happening there. But here's what I want you to know. That general knowledge, that, that knowledge of God doesn't save them. That's what we call general revelation. Anyone can look at the sun, anyone can look at the planets, anyone can study microorganisms, anyone can, can look at a microscope and look at a, a molecular structure of matter and know that there is a God. That knowledge only alerts a person that they should be 
pursuing that God. They should be finding out about that God because somehow deep down inside they know that they should be worshiping that God. But that general knowledge of God doesn't save them. In fact, that general knowledge of God is what ends up condemning them if they choose to reject him. Because on judgment day, God's going to look at them square in the face and he's going to say, you knew I existed. I put that in your heart. And you chose to reject it. That's why that general knowledge of him becomes the no excuse for anyone. No one has an excuse. So how are people saved? How do people come to the, the, the ability to be a Christian? Well, that's what we call special revelation. That's what we call the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good news that's revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. And this message must be proclaimed. It must be spoken. It must be told to people. In Romans chapter 10, Paul says it quite clearly. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how... Are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. Every now and then, you'll hear this famous catchphrase. It it goes something like this. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that? That catchphrase is damning. Let me tell you why. You must use words if you want people to know the gospel. I understand what the phrase means. It means you need to live it out. Your life needs to exemplify uh, what you believe. But someone can't see the gospel. Someone has to hear the gospel. It's It's a proclamation. That's why Paul says to the saints in Ephesians chapter 1, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Their hearing came through the Apostle Paul as he made his missionary journey uh, through Ephesus uh, on his way around the Middle East. Everywhere Paul went, he preached the good news. Paul was bold in preaching the good news, and he suffered for it. He, He was beaten for it. He was stoned for it. Paul was left dead for it. He was imprisoned for it. Paul spent a day and a night treading water in the open sea for it. Paul was shipwrecked for the gospel. He received five lashings for the gospel. Why? What would motivate a guy to to want to go like Paul did? What would motivate all of those missionaries and evangelists that I named at the beginning of my sermon? What motivated them to go? Because Paul knew that when the elect of God heard the good news of salvation, they would do what? They would believe. Here's what happened in Acts chapter 13. It says, For the Lord, so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. 
And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Paul had confidence that when the word of the Lord was preached, those chosen by God would believe. He didn't know who they were, so he just preached to everybody. He just told everybody the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we preach the gospel to everybody. It's an indiscriminate message. It goes to every man, woman, boy, and girl. We preach the gospel to everyone. Why? We don't know who God's going to save. We have no idea who God's going to save. And until a person passes away in death, we continue to reach out to him or her with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, praying that they'll repent and that they'll believe in the gospel. That's that person's responsibility, a human responsibility to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God holds men and women accountable for that. But here's the the good news, and this is something that, we should praise God for that it's happened in your life if you are a Christian and it's going to happen in other people's lives who are going to become Christians and it is this, when a sinner hears the word of truth and believes, notice what happens in Ephesians 1 verse 13. Go back there. They are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was promised by Jesus when he still walked on the earth. In fact, if you remember the great discourse in the upper room, Jesus says, I'm going to be leaving you guys, and when I leave, I will send the paraclete, the helper, the one who comes alongside. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And the Holy Spirit, he's going to do things like convict of sin and judgment and righteousness. But you need the Holy Spirit. He was promised. And so when the Holy Spirit arrived in Acts 2 and began to convict right there in in that first little revival service, those sinners began to believe. And Paul says, when they believed and when you believe, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. This isn't so much that the Spirit does the uh, sealing as much as He is the seal. You're not just sealed by the Holy Spirit. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Now, if you know the context, if if you've read your Bible, you know that seals were used throughout the, the Bible to mark uh, authority. They were, they were marks of security. They, they were marks of authenticity. Do you remember the story of Daniel in the lion's den? And, and Daniel w- was cast in there. It was, it was closed off by a huge stone. And the verse goes on to say that the king sealed it with his own signet that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. So when the king stuck his seal on there, that hot wax, and he put his emblem on there, it denoted authority. Don't move this stone by the authority of the king. There was another stone in biblical history that was sealed by authority. Uh, That was the stone that covered the tomb of Jesus. If you remember, there was a Roman seal that was placed there, which basically said, if you move this stone, you die. Well, apparently the angels didn't care so much. They had a higher authority that said, move the stone. And so they moved the stone on the authority of God. So the seal has a lot of 
symbolism when it comes to ownership and authority. And so when you and I believe in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives immediately. It's not a second blessing. It's not a second uh, crisis of faith. There is an immediate, effectual mark of God stamped on our lives that says, this is my adopted child. Here's my seal, the Holy Spirit. And since there is no authority higher than God, when God places that seal, it cannot be removed. That's why according to John 14, verses 16 and 17, the Holy Spirit abides with the believer forever. We can grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, We're going to see that when we get to chapter 4 of Ephesians, uh, and and we can lose his blessings, uh, but that mark is is a stamp of wonderful comfort, of permanency in our lives, that stamp of the Holy Spirit. So here's the question that I think that you ought to be asking yourself if you are a Christian, or at least if you claim to be a Christian, the question you should be asking is, how do I know if I have that Holy Spirit? How do I know that the seal of God is on my life? What's the mark? What's the evidence that God has marked me for adoption? If I profess Christianity, if I profess Jesus Christ, how do I have the assurance that in fact I am adopted? I think that's a great question. I think that's that's the right question to ask. Well, go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at the end of verse 13. I think Paul here is very specific when he uses the Spirit's full name. He says, you were sealed by, not just the Spirit, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. By his very nature, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is just that. He's holy. He's blameless. Remember, he's a member of the Godhead. There is no sin in him. There is is nothing vile in him. There is no no filth in him. There There is no unrighteousness in him. So if a person professes faith in Jesus Christ, the evidence that the Holy Spirit has sealed him is that he begins acting like the Holy Spirit who acts just like the other members of the Trinity, and the least of which is Jesus Christ. And so if, if, if you want to know, do I have the Holy Spirit in my life, then look at the evidence, the, the proof, the, the living testimony of your life. Why did God choose you? Well, verse 4 of Ephesians 1, so that you would be holy and blameless. How's he going to accomplish that? He's going to give you his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit is going to begin producing the fruit of himself in your life. Don't go looking for evidence of the Spirit in your life by seeing if there's some giant E written all over you for elect. You're not going to find that. Some people get all caught up in in anxiety over, I I don't know if if I'm one of the elect. What do I do? That's the wrong question. You can't answer that question. The only way you know 
that you are in the family of God is by looking for the evidence of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit in coming out in your life. Galatians chapter 5 tells us what to look for. The fruit of the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So here's the question you should be asking. Do I see an increasing joy coming out of my life? Do I see an increasing kindness exuding from my life? Do do I see an unexplained gentleness or self-control that wasn't there before, that's being presented in my life? Those are the things you look for. Do I find myself wanting to spend time in God's word? Do I find myself wanting to pray? Do I find myself enjoying the fellowship of other Christians? Do I find myself wanting to crucify the flesh? In other words, I don't want to live for the world's values anymore. Getting drunk just doesn't have that appeal to me like it did before. Swearing and cussing and crude joking, it, it just feels dirty. I, I used to like that, and, and now it just it doesn't feel right. That, that bad music or that illicit relationship, it just doesn't carry the attraction that it once did. Those are the kinds of things you look for. Those are the evidence. That is the assurance that you have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, that God has begun a work in you and he will be faithful to complete it in you. That's the guarantee. In fact, look again at verse 14, Ephesians 1. Verse 14 says, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's a guarantee. That word guarantee there is a word that means down payment or a first installment. Okay, so the idea is something like this. The spirit in your life is a down payment with a promise of more to come. You get to experience a little bit of heaven here on earth, but eventually you get to experience heaven in all of its fullness Peter describes it like this. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When the Bible talks about your salvation, it talks about it in three stages. It kind of looks like this. We have been redeemed through faith in Jesus Christ. We are being redeemed by the Spirit who's working in our life, making us like Christ. And we shall be redeemed when Christ returns and we become fully like him. I've said it like this before, and I think it bears repeating. When you were saved, you were released from the penalty of sin. As you are being saved, you are being released 
from the power of sin. And one day when you are glorified and you see Jesus face to face, you will be released from the very presence of sin. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin will all be gone. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of that. It started now, but one day you'll acquire full possession of it. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. So what are we to do today? We display this ongoing faith, this faith that is accompanied by works. Let me be really honest with you. If you are sitting here today and you claim to love Jesus and your life has nothing to show for it, you live like every other pagan around you. You claim to be a Christian, but I, no one could tell the difference between you and any un, other unbeliever. You might be saved. I can't see your heart. I don't know for sure, but I can give you no assurance of that whatsoever. Your assurance comes when you live out your faith. That's where the assurance is. When you see the Holy Spirit increasing maturity in your life and you become closely and more closely resembling the Lord that you profess to follow. Does that mean as a believer that you have to be perfect? That you are sinless? No, it doesn't mean that. Even if you are a believer, there are times when you will sin. But you repent and you get back up and you keep going. Rest assured, God has not lost one of his sheep yet, and you won't be the first. In conclusion, I want to return to this little phrase that appears three different times in this text, verses three to four. It's the phrase that, that's really uh, driven the sermon titles you're probably thinking, is he ever going to change the sermon title? He just adds part one, two, three, four, five, whatever he wants to do. Well, it, here's why I've done that. At the, again, at the end of each work of the Trinity, in verses 3 to 14, Paul exclaims to the praise of the glory of God. Without exception, when he gets to the end of verse 14, he says it again as he thinks about the Holy Spirit. He says, to the praise of his glory. So it's to the praise of the glory of the Father, to the praise of the glory of the Son, verse 12, and now to the praise of the glory of God the Spirit. It is all about God. Sometimes we have this idea that the reason God saves sinners is because mainly he looks down from heaven and he just kind of feels sorry for us and he has pity on us and he rescues us from our impending doom and he saves us. And, and there is some element of truth to that. But the main purpose for which God saves sinners is so that he is glorified. That's why he saves sinners. So that he looks great. His creation, his general revelation reveals his wisdom. It reveals his power even to unbelievers. But it is his church, his redeemed ones, those who have heard and believed in his special revelation that reveals his love and his mercy and his grace. And all those attributes of God are most on display when lost, rebellious sinners are given a new heart. 
The heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is put in and they respond in belief. You and I can't do that on our own. You weren't smart enough on your own to come to Jesus. You weren't special enough on your own to come to Jesus. But God did a work in you that only he could do. And so from eternity past, verses 3 to 6, to history past, verses 7 to 12, to eternity future, God says there is only one person who gets the glory, and that is me. And I get the glory by redeeming sinners throughout the course of history, keeping them for my great name. Friend, if you are a believer here today, your life is on grand display for the glory of God. And how you live out that life is on grand display for the glory of God. And far, far from ever becoming conceited or arrogant in your salvation, my prayer is that in humility, recognizing that only God can get the credit for this, that you now live out the rest of your life in service for him so that when you stand in front of him, God says, to the praise of my glorious grace, here's another one. To the praise of my glorious grace, don't I look awesome, God's gonna say, as yet another redeemed sinner stands in front of him. Let's stand for prayer and praise God right now for the praise of his glorious grace. God, you are the one who looks great. You are, you are the only one who could ever could have thought up a plan like this. Man, if we would have tried to think of a plan, we would have thrown in there all kinds of good and worthy things that could be accomplished. And of course, we would have made the list such that we could have accomplished it, whether or not anybody else could have, we could have, we would have had our own little set of rules. And instead... You reveal your character in the form of law and all of a sudden we see we can't keep it. We have fallen short of the glory of God. And so you step in. Emmanuel, God with us, you send your own son into the world to die for sinful men and then you send your Holy Spirit in after that. And the Holy Spirit taking this gospel of Jesus Christ works in the heart of men and women, bringing about faith that will cause them to believe. And so that we look back in eternity past, we see your plan. We look back in history past and we see Jesus uh, fulfilling your plan. We look in the current and we see the work that the Holy Spirit is doing in our lives to, to execute your plan. And then we look into eternity future and we see how the Spirit is keeping and holding us for an inheritance that awaits us in full glory. Father, and we sit back in amazement like Paul, and we say, this is all for the praise of your glorious grace. This is all about you. So, Father, this morning, we lift you high. We're in your word. We're in the Bible. We're the sinner, and you are the great Savior. And for that, we will give you praise and honor and glory. And all God's people said, amen.